0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, and welcome to another episode.
1: Hello, how are you going?
0: Yeah, good. Yeah. So, t- tell us who, who who are we about to have a chat with today?
1: Well, we talk to Dr. Melissa Sweet today from Croaky uh, Media, and uh, she. Uh, words. <laughs> i
0: <Yeah>. so she's <laughs>
1: struggling a,
0: here. <laughs> so, so Crokey Media is an offshoot of Crikey, which is a political media organisation. That's
1: right, yes.
0: Um, and they, Crokey is, that, is a health-focused media organisation. Yes, and so, so
1: they do a lot of articles about different public health areas um, yep. and it's really about getting information out there um, in order to make health, health equity a thing and, and getting the right information with um, evidence-based Uh, data and things like that so everyone can understand
0: that's right and so i think the term that um melissa uses quite a bit is public interest health journalism so the sorts of things that are and we'll let melissa give you a bit more of a background on what public interest journalism is but Mm, mm -hmm. yeah it's it's stuff that doesn't attract necessarily attract clicks on the internet and whatnot it's more about real issues that are affecting people that might not be as kind of sexy in the news yeah you know? it's
1: not about like the next uh, fad for diets and things like that or like, yeah. the lollipops that make you lose weight um it's really about what's important to people so they can be healthier and happier with their their life and that's
0: like right that. yeah yeah so yeah really interesting conversation so we'll let you guys enjoy it really good platform for listening, you know, but of course you have to think about whose voices aren't there as well. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Melissa Sweet to the podcast. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much and, for the invitation.
0: And, and where do we find you today?
2: Well, um, that's lovely that you raise it because I look out my window and there's actually some beautiful soft winter sunlight. I'm in southern Lutruwita, Tasmania, and, you know, i like to acknowledge that I'm very fortunate and grateful to be living on the beautiful country of the Malacaty people. Pay my respects um, to elders past, present, and to the future leaders. And I also acknowledge, um, you know, my colleagues and friends at Croaky Aboriginal colleagues who are you know contribute enormously to our project at croaky while having much else on their plate so yeah, really yeah okay. give them a shout out as well
0: we, we have a standard um acknowledgement of the Wajak noongar people on our podcast so that's where we are we're on their land today yep. over in western yep. australia yep. Um, And
1: I think we also have very similar weather because it is uh, very nice outside um, for us as well. I (laughs) expect you have a few
2: more um, degrees to your temperature. Oh, most certainly.
0: (laughs) It has been fairly cool though here. It has sort of got down to almost zero in Perth the last two or three days, I think. Okay. Yeah, we have had a bit of a cold snack. Yeah, we yeah. have. That but might
2: be a bit of a shock for you, wouldn't
1: it? Really? Oh, yeah, I yeah. had to get like the big coats out and scarves yeah. and things. Yep. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> that one week a year where you actually have to, you know, rug up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, the way we normally do this is for the benefit of people who might not know who you are, Melissa, we get you just to give us a bit of a background about your education and also, you know, what you're doing at the moment, you know, current position and, and your employment history and that sort of thing.
2: Sure. Well, I am a public health journalist. I've been a journalist since the mid-1980s roughly and I've been doing health probably, you know, since the late, you know, mid-87, 88, probably started doing covering health and medical uh, round and that was back working in mainstream type of publications, etc. I worked at Australian Associated Press, the National Wire Agency. For some years, I worked in specialist medical publishing, Australian doctor, um, I worked at the Sydney Morning Herald <clears throat> back in the days when it was Fairfax and before it was still doing regular rounds of redundancies with journalists then, but not, not nearly to the extent that it has in more recent years. And, um, and then I sort of went freelance to work as an independent journalist and I you know, wrote for a wide variety of publications and also was a columnist for the Bulletin magazine for a while there, Um, and I've done various books or co-authored books over the years relating to different health topics. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, yeah, so that's me. I've lived in, you know, done most of my journalism living probably in New South Wales um, and then moving to Latruita a few years ago. But I I must also do a shout-out to um, WA because I did actually do my studies in Western Australia, did a Mm -hmm. very... Unusual course, which no longer exists, a rural journalism course, which was a sort of based partly between Northern Ag College and Curtin.
0: Yeah. Um, now we, we don't have time to go into it today, but I believe you did a PhD as well.
2: Yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, so, that was through the University of Canberra, but involved spending a lot of time in WA. Okay, that's
0: great. Yeah. Nick, yeah.
2: So was was journalism something that you always wanted to do? Um, well, I think I was one of those fairly typical. Tragic people who loved English at school. Ah, okay, <laughs> Thought, yep. how can I get a job that was <laughs> <involved tragic>. writing? Very <laughs> tragic. And I learned very quickly going for job interviews, that was not the right thing to say to um, editors when you were looking for a job, you know. It, um, they wanted the news hound uh, more. So, um, so that's, yeah, so I guess I did want to do journalism from, you know, finishing school type thing, but it was hard to get into. Mm-hmm. That's why I did the rural journalism course. To be honest, because it was a bonded scholarship, you know, someone would support you to study, and then you were guaranteed a job. Mm -hmm. So I went back to work at Queensland Country Life in Brisbane for a little while.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and what sort of uh, stories and was there are there any stories in particular that stick out from your time at um, Queensland Queensland Country Country Life? Life? Yeah.
2: Well, I remember there were. I think there were two women journalists in the newsroom, (laughs) um, and you can imagine Queensland at that time, it was a fairly gendered newsroom and um, I think I did a lot of the country show reporting, but I do remember um, some stories that I really enjoyed doing, which were actually interviewing old people, essentially, elderly, rural people, just, you know, their stories. Um, So that was something I remember from that time, really Mm -hmm. um, enjoyed enjoyed that type of storytelling.
0: One of those older people wasn't Sergio Bjorkie Peterson, was it?
2: <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> it's definitely not. me <laughs> showing my
0: age there. But yeah, that must have been interesting times living in Queensland during that era.
2: Yes, it was. And I think, like many people at that time, you know, I couldn't wait to move south. So I moved mm-hmm. down to Sydney for a job with Australian Associated Press back
0: mm-hmm. in the day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've. You, I guess we'll start a bit broad and then we'll talk about specifically what you're doing today. Um, You've obviously seen the media and the journalism landscape transform quite a bit in the time you've been working. Do you just want to give us a bit of a reflection on on your your view on that?
2: Yes. Look... I guess there's been so many changes it's hard to know where to start in in a lot of ways. I mean, there's been changes that have been good and that have been bad. Uh, I mean, the most fundamental change is the one that's affected everyone, which has been the digital uh, revolution in the way how the internet really transformed everyone's lives and decimated a lot of business models and created new ones. And, um, you know, I guess the business model for journalism was one of the um, business models that really... um, declined as all the uh, funding for advertising went online um, etc so I think a lot of people still don't realise that that um, journalism really <coughs> was never funded by subscriptions so much you know that was not ever enough to fund what what is essentially quite an expensive business to fund people to do if you're doing proper journalism you know you might spend a lot of time doing stories that never end up seeing the light of day or that don't turn out like you think so it is a to do it properly, quite a resource-intensive business. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we've all seen the impacts of that right around the world in terms of the collapse of traditional publishing. I mean, there's also been exciting things that have happened because, you know, as I think back to my Queensland Country Life newsroom, which was pretty well full of middle-aged white blokes, you know, hopefully newsrooms are getting more diverse and more aware of the limitations (coughs) um, of not being diverse if if they're not... um, you know changing so mm-hmm. so that's been a good change i think in in the industry yeah. um and so many other other <laughs> trends you know the way we do journalism you know online that's really transformed the old days days you know ringing up people actually going out to <laughs> people's offices or homes to interview them that you know doesn't happen nearly as much um mm-hmm. that intense connectivity that we all have you know, it's pretty well a twenty four seven job in a lot of ways, unless you manage to get away or can go somewhere where <laughs> there is no mm-hmm. internet or reception. Yeah.
1: Do you do you prefer the non digital or the digital age? For oh, I or...
2: love the digital age. I just yeah, wish okay. I just wish it was. Um, I just wish there was a way to pay the bills. You know, yep. mm-hmm. the, I, I mean at Croaky, we can talk about Croaky later, but you know, no one. No one earns a market rate, no one earns a livable income essentially and, you know, I feel really good about people's commitment and what we achieve with a very limited budget but it's not, it's not right. You know, yeah. people mm. should be paid proper um, wages, people should have some security and more importantly, we should have a pathway for young people. You know, the only reason we can all do what we do at crokey is because we have housing security or, you, you know, we don't need to pay massive rents etc mm. so most of us anyway
0: yeah okay so what why don't you that's probably a good opportunity to segue into croaky, um because that's i'm assuming that's kind of your main focus these days is that right
2: yeah no it is it is very much i mean i i would like to do more other writing but it's just um it takes up a lot of a lot of time even just trying to stay afloat in you, you know the pandemic mm-hmm. was um Tough on us financially, you know. At the same time as our workload more or less doubled, yeah. and and um, you know a lot of newsrooms uh, around the world haven't survived the pandemic. <coughs> mm, so okay. um, we're hanging in, but it's certainly not um, certain that we will, will continue to do that longer term. Yeah.
0: So, so you just want to give us a beef, a, a beef, a <laughs> brief, <laughs> brief. <laughs> yeah, brief back, back, background about Croaky and where it's come from and uh, where you are with it today. Okay.
2: Do you want to know the whole sorry story, like going right back to 2007? Yeah, let's do it. Whole story, whole story. Okay, whole story. So the whole story is um, uh, over many years, you know, I had a a connection, it's a friendship now with Professor Simon Chapman who, you know, has been very prominent in tobacco control. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was at the University of Sydney and he used to get me and other journalists in to talk to public health academics about why they should engage with the media. Simon was a big, you know, proponent of media advocacy as a core skill for public health. Um, um, and so I guess he was trying to encourage colleagues who might not have accepted that to to see some potential benefits from media engagement. But at, at the time I was actually writing a book on um, preventing obesity, which was called The Big Fat Conspiracy, and it was about how do you take a public health approach to tackling obesity? And, you know, this was, this was way back when, and the obvious thing was that you don't say to people oh well you really must eat better and you must exercise more if the food environment is crap and the urban environment doesn't actually allow you to exercise so i i sort of started thinking about well we're just it's just what we're doing with these academics we're saying you must really do this knowing that a they hate doing it there's no reward for doing it and you know it's often quite unpleasant in, in a lot of ways dealing with the media you know people wanting to interrupt you at all hours of the day or night for comment, and then you're not being happy with how it appears in the media or whatever. So the idea was, well, how do you take public health thinking and apply it to this issue? And so we came up with the idea of establishing a process to make it easier for public health people to contribute to debate and less painful. And that was Simon rang up (coughs) Eric Beecher, who was the editor of Crikey and said, if we um, provide you with this panel of health and medical experts to provide you with timely, wonderful content, what do you think? And and so Beecher said he'd give it a go. So so it was initially the Crikey Health and Medical Panel. So I would, you know, if there was something in the news, I would ring around contacts and, and get them to write something or work it up. So we did that for some time. And then it evolved into a blog sitting on Crikey, which they came up with the name of Crikey. Uh, but over time, it sort of uh, became more editorially independent in that Crikey wasn't really involved in it. And I basically just did it. I uploaded the stuff. It sat on on Crikey's website, but wasn't really um, under their editorial oversight. Um, and it became problematic for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and we wanted to go off and have our own website. And we got a small grant from the Walkley Foundation to do that, so in 2015, know, after several years on the crokey website we um, migrated off onto our own own website and thankfully um, they let us take all our content which was good because we had, you know, a massive archive we didn't want to lose. So I think to me that's one of the strengths of crokey that we have, we do, we've got a massive archive, you know, you can look back at, you know, what were the health policy issues in, you know, 2007, 2008, etc. And it's quite dispiriting how little they've changed <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that was a history and, you know, I was doing it solo for a number of years and then I went off to do the PhD and other people sort of joined in to help her and keep it going and we just sort of evolved as a you know, very flexible network of people who were contributing to it, but it was all through my ABN, which was a bit problematic. And so, um, oh, and one important point I forgot to make there is that um, years before we went off the Crikey website, we we had been getting some retainer from Crikey to help fund it, um, and they cut the funding. And, you know, they I I remember the editor at the time saying, well, look, I've just realised, quite a lot of our contributors' budget is going to funding croaky and, you know, health isn't really our core business. We're a political um, news site. And I'm like, my God, is there anything more political than health, <laughs> mm. <laughs> really? But that is a comment on really how mainstream media sees health. They yep. see it as a lifestyle issue or a research breakthrough issue, not actually a fundamental, fundamentally political issue. You know, it's about yeah. how resources are distributed and who gets them or doesn't. Which
0: is really interesting, considering how effective scare campaigns about Medicare and whatnot are in the in the political sphere, isn't
2: it? Yes yeah
1: I mean if we even look at like the the fact that people have a choice of vaccine um, which is purely mm. media hype and political um, yeah. that yeah that's the main example I can think of is yeah. like yeah I, the number of conversations I've had about it, the type of vaccine you're going to get is just it's crazy it's bizarre <laughs> isn't it That's yeah, so
2: consumerist right. as well isn't it yeah that whole exactly branding or whatever and who knows what the, um forces are driving that as well mm. yeah. so um so at that time I guess the expectation was that we would fold But um, the Public Health Association um, stepped in and said, we'll try and get a consortium of groups to put some funding together to keep you going. So um, that's really important to acknowledge that. And that was really important, actually, in keeping us going um, Mm -hmm. over those years. And um, post-PhD, we realised we had to get proper governance and set up. So we we were very lucky that one of our contributors had a mate who was a corporate lawyer who got his firm to put some pro bono time into helping us set up as a non-profit organisation. But the trick is there is actually no good pathway to set up as a non-profit journalism organisation in Australia, which is really sad. Um, And so we had to set up as a health charity. That was the lawyer's advice. Um, which, which is very tricky because I mean a when, when you look into it the definition of a health charity is very problematic in itself you know it's really very disease and illness focused
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and b um, you know we should have a pathway for nonprofit public interest journalism I think it's the best model for helping to resurrect journalism and make it more accountable to communities and so on and you know I, think the the aboriginal community controlled health organization that sector is a brilliant example of what we could be doing with-profit journalism in a way in terms of having you know even very small outfits set up that are accountable to and embedded in communities <clears throat> because there's mm. so many um, news deserts <laughs> yeah. around australia and probably will only be more just um, um,
0: sorry to interrupt just out of interest is there a a good model somewhere around the world for... Well, there's else.
2: lots of, in the States in particular, that's a real stronghold of non-profit um, publishing and I think they've got clearer pathways and it's much easier for them to get um, deductible gift recipient status, DGR, which we haven't been able to get at Crokey. When we set up as a non-profit, the lawyers applied for us to get DGR, but we were knocked back. Right. Um, And there are a few other non-profit organisations in Australia, you know, like The Conversation, um, Mm. which has got it. um, The Walkley Foundation, which has got it. And I think the Judith Nielsen Institute just got it. But they get it through political advocacy, you know, asking the Treasurer to put you on the legislation, which is not a good way to do policy. You know, it's not Mm. a clear, transparent, (coughs) equitable process.
0: It's not objective, is it? It's subjective.
2: Mm.
0: Like Sorry, I you. just... It's not objective, it's subjective.
2: No, 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 it's who you know. Um, I know. mean, I yeah. heard a story about one of those organisations, I um, think they got Laurie Oaks to <coughs> take them around and meet the treasurer or something. I mean, I know I know that's how a lot of policy is made through connections and, yeah. and so on. But, it, you know, it's not, especially for the media industry, it's not really how you should do business. No.
0: If you look at how the ABC gets kicked around as a political football, it's, mm. it's clearly not a good model, yeah. Oh.
1: So is, just as this is for like my interest, um, yeah. is the conversation n- non-for-profit or is it a it profit? It is not for non
2: Yeah, it, okay. conversation is non-profit. It, it has got, had quite good funding from the university sector. Right, okay. Um, but I don't know what its current situation is because, you know, universities have been hit so hard over the last year. Um you know, mm. it, they've been incredibly successful, you know, in developing a, a model <laughs> and and that's been replicated overseas as well as you probably yeah. have seen. So I'm mm. very grateful, you know, <clears throat> that we have the conversation. Yeah. Um but we're we're different to them in the sense mm. that, you know, they're publishing pretty well mainly academics. <laughs> um mm-hmm. And we're and obviously we're focused not just around health, but we have a very explicit standpoint around health equity. Um, yeah. But we do. You, you probably see we cross publish quite a lot of their articles, so that's. hmm It's good for us to have that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's there is a bit of crossover, but it it seems like, although you guys have buy-in from academics, that you a lot of you are journalists first and foremost. Is that right?
2: Um, on our team. Um, so the, the editors who rotate in, um, so there's Mari McInerney. So Mari's been a journalist, you know, all her career. She has worked in the social policy space as well. Uh, Jennifer Doggett, you know, has a background in journalism, but she's worked in health policy for over many years as well. Um, Nicole McKee, who's editing this week, has been a journalist in health and medical area for a long, long time. Um, Ruth. Armstrong, who has, she was an editor at the Medical Journal for years by background a GP. She was one of our editors and she's still very involved with Croaky, but she's had to go off our editor's roster because she's um, signed up to the pandemic response in New South Wales. So mm-hmm. she really wanted to be part of that using her sort of medical skills. Um, yeah. And Amy Koops, who who is a journalist by background, but went off and studied medicine, is now mm-hmm. um, doctoring. Um, yeah. but it still
0: does work with us. So, <clears throat> so I've, I've actually ha- had the pleasure of having contact with two of those people um, directly. So uh, Mary McInerney was at a, an Aboriginal health conference in WA here about six years ago.
2: Yes, that's uh, right. You mentioned that. Was that the one yeah. up at
0: Geraldton? It was the Geraldton yeah. Aborig- Aboriginal Medical Service, I think, that was running it. And uh, it was yeah. the first one ever presented at, so that's what sticks in my mind. <laughs> um, so that was my first... Uh, introduction to croaky and then about a couple of months ago nicole mckee gave me a call to discuss an article she was doing i think on the prisons up in the north of western australia
2: yeah yeah and, and yeah the health i think we're hope- issues we're hoping to publish that article the next week
0: or so mm. yeah, it's, yeah it's great it's great work it's much needed because yeah there's the sort of a silent population you know that people want to the mainstream wants to sort of just pretend they don't exist so
2: yeah um no, we we would love to be able to do so much more around um, justice and health issues and really, you know, um, Associate Professor Megan Williams from Sydney Uni, mm-hmm. who is co-chair of Crokey as well as being a contributing editor and very involved in the journalism side, you know, that's her area of research and interest. And Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've met. Yeah, she talks I've, a lot about how public interest journalism can help as a um, research translation and having yeah. that political impact in a way.
0: I've met Megan before at, at conferences and she's she's really good. Yeah. yeah really really interesting fantastic. to listen to. I'm very lucky
2: to work with her. Yeah. So um,
1: you, you just mentioned a phrase there and I'm not really sure exactly what it means. And that's um, public interest journalism. Um, what is that?
2: Um, Well, maybe I should look up our strategic plan so I can give you our official (laughs) definition. Yeah, okay. Um, I do actually also have it on my Twitter uh, profile, so you'd think I would remember. (laughs) So this is one uh, definition that you often hear. Um, I guess it's to distinguish there's so many forms of journalism and the digital era has driven journalism in the direction of seeking maximum clicks, Mm -hmm. you know, being very analytics-driven, and that can very easily lead you away from public interest journalism because I know, for example, in health, if we were analytics-driven, we would be covering cures for baldness, you know, (laughs) celebrities' health syndromes and whatever the latest, you know, miracle cancer breakthrough or diet is. So, So I think public interest journalism is not about being clicks driven or analytics driven or um, commercially driven. So here's the definition we have in our strategic plan. It gives people the, informa- the information they need to take part in the democratic process. It informs and contributes to policy and practice. It holds power to account and amplifies the voices of those who are not well served by the current distribution of power. So that's how we're defining in our plan, I, I think for a lot of journalists, they think of public interest journalism as the big investigative stuff, you know, like the Watergate or whatever, which, of course, is public interest journalism. But I also think, you know, public interest journalism is reporting on your local council. You know, it's reporting on <sighs> policy developments that might be quite tedious and, you know, not not sort of headline-grabbing, but they're mm-hmm. really important. Um, so yeah. I think so it's, it's my- about providing a useful service myself.
0: Yeah, so it seems like one of your aims is to demystify some of the mm. policy issues for the everyday person so they can understand and make informed decisions about their health and what's going on in government and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I think we're probably, yeah, very much about policy because I think so much reporting is pol- political. It's about mm. politics as a game. You know yeah. like what does this mean for the numbers or who's mm. who type of thing whereas um it's quite frustrating actually i was just there was something the other day with the pandemic where there was oh, must have been the latest vaccine announcement from a target about changing the threshold the age threshold okay. for astrazeneca Yeah. and and so it was this really important announcement which needed careful unpicking and consideration etc and whatever I must have been watching ABC and they went straight to the political journalists for their takes Mm. on the politics of it, which, you you know, I I guess has a place, but to me that you know, we really needed to actually understand the policy and the evidence and the reasoning and the implications. Mm.
0: Yeah, okay. Now, it's come up in a couple of conversations that I've overheard that there's a crisis in public interest journalism currently. Do you want to speak (laughs) about that?
2: Um, Well, we, some of the croaky team published an article last year in one of the public health journals towards the end of the year, um, you know, looking at converging crises in public interest journalism and the pandemic. And I guess it was going back to the idea of, you know, the crisis in the business model, which has been around for a long time, but the pandemic really exacerbated that and there was acknowledgement of that globally. And yet this was a time when we really needed public interest journalism um, in all its forms. And, um, internationally what seems to have got a lot of attention is the impact of the pandemic on local newsrooms, that so many local newsrooms have closed. I mean, we're already seeing that trend, I think. In fact, you know, the work that I was doing with KHD and WA in Carnarvon, I can remember when we did a number of events and there were no journalists based in town, people travelled down from Caratha to cover stories. You know, that's that's not yeah. local journalism. No. <laughs> so that's not people <laughs> rooted in the community understanding um, the local community. Um, so I think part of the crisis, it, you know, why it's a crisis really comes home in a pandemic where you really need reliable information, you need people with the right context and local knowledge, you, you know, um, and and what how policy is going to play out locally. You know, if you don't know what the local services are or... Issues then um, that has real implications for people's health and well-being.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's um, that was yeah. Little... So
2: I guess the pandemic really highlighted the crisis, and the other thing that really got highlighted this year was, you know, the that the immense power of the monopolies, the Facebook and Google um, mm. companies, and you know, they exercise just that little bit, you know, just their little pinkies, really, of of their corporate power, and how devastating was that? You know, closing down a whole lot of Um, Facebook you know we're so reliant on these platforms Mm. Um, so that's part of the crisis I think affecting our information and news ecosystem.
0: They they really are a double-edged sword aren't they um, social media platforms because they're obviously very accessible and the threshold's very low to get access which is great if you haven't got a lot of resources but then at the same time you're at the behest of the people running them and you know, if they don't like what you're doing, then that's yeah. actually, you know, it's an issue.
2: And, and you know, the government's been through a policy process developing the News Media Bargaining Code with the aim of getting some revenue from these companies to support uh, publishers. And one of the reasons for that was they would change their algorithms. So overnight, you know, news companies would suddenly find their readership plummeted <coughs> because of an algorithm change. And that's not only an issue for media or journalism you know all community groups and all businesses are really um at the the whim of these companies and um you know it's not it's not a a healthy healthy environment it's not Mm -hmm. good for businesses or innovation as well as for information
1: i think the same thing is actually happening with um tiktok at the moment where because they've got their current like business model is like you create stuff and then once you've hit a certain level of follows um, you can go into their creator fund and then what's been happening in their algorithms is as soon as you join the creator fund um, your posts are no longer uh, for like the for you page the main page where people kind of figure out who everyone is Um, and then they don't get any money because they're no longer visible um and i think that kind of happens a lot with all of the other social medias as well it's like as soon as you like enter into the potential of getting money it's like nah can't be seen anymore yeah Yeah, it's Mm. really interesting
2: Mm. well um one of our um, colleagues at craigie peter lewis i mean he says something like you know the if something's free, you know, you're the you're the one being sold in some way or another, you know, they're selling your mm. data or, or whatever. And, and we've just had that experience at Crokey because we distribute not only via our website but also via Apple News. I don't know if you have the Apple News app, but, you know, it's a great aggregate of content. And in some ways it's been fantastic for Crokey because it really increased our readership by about a third, brought us in a lot of um, overseas readers. But Apple News has now launched a paid version
0: Mm. of Apple oh, News. Oh, okay. okay.
2: Mm. And so they're obviously transferring everything to that, um, which we're not on. Um, and so all of a sudden our Apple News readership has just gone like that, you okay. know, quite quickly. So you, you just, you're just really at the power of these companies and their agendas. Yeah, yeah.
0: and there'll be a new one tomorrow, a different one. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I
2: sort of worry because Twitter's such a big platform for us and I just sort of wonder where they're going to head and... You know what that will mean for for our journalism as well mm. so i guess you can't have all your eggs in one basket is part of the message <laughs> yeah. yeah twitter's
1: a really interesting one as well because i feel like uh because like i've had a personal twitter for a very very long time and i yeah. kind of go through waves of using it and yeah. when i first started using it i i was uh, quite young and not in the academic space and then when i moved to the academic space i realized how how big of a network it actually is for academics and for research. Yeah. Um, so uh, it feels like a very important um, platform for translation of your work, yeah. even on a personal level. So I can like I can see why that would become an important point for for something like Crokey because it, it does allow that dissemination.
2: Yeah, it does, and and new connections. We just did um, every winter solstice for the past, I think, 2018. We began. We do a Twitter festival. Oh, okay. ...about books and reading, and each year it's quite different. And this year, because we had contributed a chapter, there's a new text coming out from Palgrave uh, called Communicating COVID, and um, the editors kindly asked us to contribute a chapter, you know, from journalism practice perspectives. And so we did the Twitter Festival program. The authors of all the different chapters were on the program. So we had, you know, scholars from Australia, from South Africa, um, UK, Talking about their different different research, and you know it was just fantastic how Twitter connected us all up, and then other people could dive in. You know, some disability advocates joined the conversation, and were interested to hear about research in their area, etc. Hmm. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah.
0: So it's, you mentioned before that you you in the past you'd received a bit of financial assistance from the PHAA. Um, oh, we have, still do. So we have a do. funding
2: consortium, okay. and they're one of our. Um, you know, groups that are still put in to our funding consortium.
0: Okay. So is, so is that kind of your current funding model? Is is there's a group of...
2: Oh, so our funding model is is sort of blended in a way and, it, you know, it's sort of all evolved quite organically over time. So we have a membership consortium where um, PHAA, AHPA, Australian Healthcare and Hospital Association, various, you know, the it's probably not the cashed in cashed up end of the health sector. Some schools of public health have been supporting us, although the pandemic sort of stopped most of that. So they all put in a small amount of money and, and that helps go towards our operating costs. We also have subscriptions to our bulletin which raises a little bit. We we developed some services. Um, it's very difficult when you're doing journalism to take money from, you know, vested interests in the area. So we're always trying to work out how to get around that. And one thing we do is Crokey Conference news service reporting. So when there's conferences, we can provide um, independent multimedia coverage, you know, like live tweeting, writing articles. We can do that whether they're in real life or the Zoom conferences now. So that's actually been really great because we put, put a proposal together and people are being paid properly, you know, mm-hmm. for doing that work and it brings us good stories at Croaky. So that's one way. And we also have our commercial arm, croaky um, professional services, which is where we do consultancy type work and then a proportion of that funds goes to our central um, operating fund. So we're just trying to find different ways. It, it, is, it is hard. I mean, it's interesting. People are very happy to pay for our croaky professional services um, because it's providing a service, but there is just not that willingness to pay for journalism. People don't value it, you know, in that way. Or I think because so much is free online you know there's no sense um, of of paying for that interestingly a new report came out yesterday which I haven't read yet apart from skimming the article on the conversation from the news media Research Center at the University of Canberra I don't know if you saw it but it was basically saying most Australians don't realize that there's a crisis in public interest journalism um, and most don't you know wouldn't don't pay for journalism either mm. you know a very small proportion of the population actually pays mm. um, So, yeah, yeah, so anyway, if you have any great ideas for how to (laughs) develop better funding, let us know.
1: I mean, that's what Um, I was about to ask you. Do you have any ideas on how to increase funding for things uh, like that? Because it seems like a very difficult problem.
2: Yeah, I guess crikeys evolve through being responsive. You know, when people have suggested things to us, we've gone, okay, let's have a go. Let's do that. So, Mm. uh, you know, we do a lot of meetings with people and try and listen to what they're interested in. We also have projects and then we try and find funders for it. And so we are working up um, a project at the moment. We haven't really gone out and talked about it publicly yet, but we want to do something around housing as a health issue. Mm-hmm. So if we could find some funding to do a series of articles around that, um, particularly in the lead up to the federal election, because I think, you know, it's a good good um, political issue as well. Um, and, you know, you can just explore so many health issues through it. You know, you can explore the justice issue, yeah. um, mental health, climate and sustainability, poverty, urban planning. I don't and know. What, what else comes to your minds? What do you think we yeah.
0: should cover? So I, I do a bit of work in the homeless space, homeless health yeah. space. And, I mean, even down to epidemiology and infectious diseases, it's it's huge. Uh, and and mental illnesses and alcohol and other drug issues are probably the primary presenting problem that, that that population has It's being homeless is almost a proxy for having a mental illness, you know, these days. Yeah. So, yeah, and also the justice thing that you mentioned, they they do cycle in and out of whether it's police custody or prison, yeah. you know, they've got high rates of contact with the justice system for very benign kind of things, you know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and not moving on because they've got nowhere to move on to, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to be able to tell some of those stories because, mm. I mean, so often housing has just been covered as an investment story, it, it, you know, great, house prices are going up <laughs> or whatever. It's just, yeah. you know, to try it, it and is. challenge that narrative and, and do it other ways. So yeah. if we can if we can get it happening, we're just sort of thinking about it at the moment. We'll come back to you if you have
0: yeah. some ideas. I, um, I know i probably need to introduce you to uh, Professor Lisa Wood who does a lot of that work here at the school. Oh, yes. I don't I've, know if you know Lisa. But,
2: that would yeah. be terrific. I've seen yeah. um, tweets of her presentations at conferences.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, she's a pretty I tired. think at the
2: recent prevention conference in Perth, did yeah.
0: she? Well, she's yeah. on the PHAA board here, I think, or committee. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she no. would have been part of that.
2: That That would be great. And, yeah. and I think, you know, when we did our just justice project around over-incarceration, I think the power was actually in having people's stories, you know, mm. um, and so that's, it would be good, you know, obviously you want to look at the policy and evidence and stuff, but it really is mm. about the storytelling.
0: Yeah, look, and a lot of Lisa's work is is case studies and, you know, qualitative yeah. in nature.
2: So just out of interest, um, sorry, I feel like I've just been talking so much. Awesome. Um, <laughs> how does any of this relate to your work and interests, you know, thinking about public interest journalism and policy what what are your oh yeah C- sure C- right. we can
1: start. um i'm actually in, in quite a, a different area to what you guys have been talking about so i'm in cardiovascular disease um okay and uh, particularly like the epidemiology of um atrial fibrillation and heart failure in western australia um but i have a a, a now deep-rooted passion in science communication um so i, I worked at a, a also non-for-profit uh SciTech at in perth which is the big science center uh yeah for, for kids and things, I worked there for five years and, and absolutely loved it. It was amazing. Uh, and from there stemmed my kind of passion behind science communication. So uh, definitely going to go into that field once I finish my PhD, I think. Um, so that's kind of how I uh, come into here a little bit, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and my background is was originally in law and criminology and I fell into public health as a research assistant being paid to recruit prisoners for a, a big health project that's ongoing that I'm actually doing my PhD on now using those data. And so from there, I guess equity and health equity has always been an interest to mine. Um, I didn't really know much about public health or the concept before I got involved in that project. Um, but since I have, I've taken a pretty keen interest in it. And so uh, for me, it's policy is really central to a lot of the research I do. You know, I'm thinking about policy all the time, how the end user is going to use these, you know, use the outputs to change things for the better and for the greater good. Um, and so, yeah, vulnerable populations is is kind of the area that I've, I've fallen into. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whereas and I think that- I just like talking about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like whoever will listen, I'll i be
0: like, hey, I do you. as well. I do as well. And I, and I am a, a bit of a political tragic as well. And you know, I do have an interest in politics and, and how, you know, which parties yeah. have which platforms and that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> Hi. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show.
2: I'm just reading Scott Scott Ludlam's latest book. I don't know if you've had the chance to read it. About It's sort of like where do we go from here and it's a mix mm-hmm. of you know, just beautiful writing and and thinking on, on different things. But he said something like um, presenting evidence that the last five elections in Australia at the time of writing were won by the political parties that spent the most. And I think he said right. the same happens in the States as well. And, I, you know, reading that, I was just thinking, here we put so much effort into talking about policy and evidence and blah, blah, blah. And then at the yeah. end of the day, if you don't get that,
0: Electoral reform mm. is
2: all it comes down to.
0: Well, even just the, the real-time disclosure of t- donations and knowing who is behind these political parties, who's supporting them, and obviously Scott of a Green senator who mm. I think he had to resign from parliament because he was ineligible under the Having two passports. Rule. That's right. Oh, yeah. that's or
2: right. Ele- yeah. He
0: was eligible to be a Canadian citizen or a New thing. Zealand. I think New Zealand citizen. Department. Yeah. One, one of one of the two, and so he had to resign <laughs> from Parliament. And you know, I think he got replaced by. Did he get replaced by? Um, I can't remember now.
1: Look, I'd have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't typically follow politics. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Anyway, I can't remember. But uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So what? What? Um, area does he work in post So now he's
2: really doing freelance writing i think and i'm not sure what else he does i follow him on instagram and he's got beautiful dogs
1: (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's always an important thing when you work in like (laughs) public health a lot of people have very lovely dogs
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes and i apologize if you can hear snoring in the background here (laughs) because my dog is snoring so that's that's the background noise at least it's relaxed the
0: record yeah (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, look, the, the political systems are a whole different conversation. And obviously, human nature is to try and game every system that we come up with. And, <laughs> you know, it gets mm. a little bit corrupted, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. the, this, politics is not um, immune to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I but I, I just touched on sort of health equity there. And I know that's a big part of what Croaky is interested in as well. Do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of how Crokey is involved with health equity and how that's a focus?
2: Well, I guess even the fact that we talk about it (laughs) because you don't actually see it mentioned very much in media more generally um, and you certainly don't hear it mentioned very much by health ministers, um, which is very disappointing Um, and, you know, it's so often not even mentioned in really fundamental policy documents explicitly. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, you know, our mission is covering underserved topics and communities. Um, so I guess, you know, from that point alone, health equity fits within that. But I, I suppose for me, um, if I just think back, I think, you know, for so many years in my career, I was really undermining health equity because I think the traditional way we report on health and the traditional way the media reports on so many things, you know, actually undermines equity. And if you undermine equity, then you undermine health equity. They're not separate things. Mm. Um, so it was sort of coming to reflect on that and and realizing that if you didn't, you know, do it very differently and specifically um, focus on it, you were part of the problem, <clears throat> or you'd stay part of the problem. And then I guess for me, you know, also my health journalism. It was one of those, you know, there's been a number of light bulb moments and one of them was reading the work of Julian Tudor Hart. I don't know if you've followed his work. Um, no. He was a GP and I would have to look it up. It was decades ago working. I think he was working in Wales at the time and he coined the term um, the inverse care, the inverse care law of healthcare, care. Um, and it arose really out of his observations as a grassroots GP who also did. Uh, epidemiology and research, and and it basically holds that, you know, those with the greatest need for healthcare will have the least access. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, I just thought reading about it decades later, it still just rang so true. Mm -hmm. And so I I suppose that was a really powerful um, sort of revelation for me, you know, that you really need to make that a central part of your work. Yeah. and realising that systems just naturally tend to evolve to suit those with the most. Um, and so how do you counteract that or how do you, you know, have some accountability around that? Mm. Um, yeah. So with your with the journalism
1: side of that then, how do you make sure that you put in health equity within your articles? Like how do you focus on that?
2: Well, I suppose it's... Um, You you know, and everything we do can be critiqued, partly because we're so shoestring. So, you know, we do the best we can. If you you had a proper budget and a proper organisation, you could probably do it, you know, so much differently and so much better. But um, so, you know, I just think bringing that focus to every question where you can, um, it's also about governance, you you know, and whose voices are heard and... and, um, Yeah, and whose voices you amplify, in, mm-hmm. really. And you can look at it in so many levels. You can look at it, you know, within the system, whose voices are powerful within healthcare and health policy, or the wider policies affecting health, and who, you know, who's who's, who's best served by mm. um, health policy and services.
0: So, so I think something quite topical. If I if I was hearing correctly this morning, I think the the latest closing the gap report is either oh, about to come out or it's just come out
2: yeah i right? think it, uh the productivity commission published something yesterday and i must admit i haven't looked at it yet because yeah. um, wednesday is our production day which basically means working <laughs> from 8 a.m till last night it was midnight so you're mm-hmm. just so flat out you don't really yeah. have yeah. a chance to um get on top of everything so i've definitely got to look at that and yeah. um yeah i guess in terms of equity that again comes down to whose voices are privileged and so on, and if we look at the pandemic response, I mean, there's been a number of articles published about um, how well the ARCHO's Aboriginal health leadership have done in responding to the pandemic. <coughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And was partly about, you know, people having a voice at the table and you know, ensuring there was funding and so on. So it's about structures and voice.
0: Mm. So using the uh, Aboriginal experience and, and you know the, the really disproportionate kind of health outcomes um, or poor health that they have compared to the non-Aboriginal people in Australia, what, what sort of, um, I guess, aims would you guys have as an organisation to try and illuminate those issues and, and get some changes where changes are needed?
2: Well, for us, I guess that comes down to that, um, you know, that idea of decolonising as an organisation, as individuals, as practitioners, um, as ways of doing journalism. And, you know, we're very much um, guided by the Aboriginal colleagues we work with, you Mm -hmm. know, whether they're on our board or as our colleagues, as social journalism. Um, And I guess, I mean, I just... See so much strength and amazing stuff that's been done in the sector and and by Aboriginal health um, professionals and communities etc. So, you know, and particularly in this time of planetary um, health crisis and climate crisis and environmental um, degradation, you know, I just think um, Indigenous knowledges and decolonising are really important. Mm. Um, yeah. In so many in so many ways. In fact, the, there was a um, a climate and health conference in um, University of Wellington this week, um, which was on Twitter. So I was following the Twitter hashtag, and our rotated Twitter account, we public health, was live tweeting from it. And you know, there was a very powerful uh, presentation by Maori public health physician on you know decolonising um, climate responses, basically. Um, so I, I think that goes back to, Mm. you know, privileging voice, um, and knowledge. Yeah. And, um, yeah, transforming the way we, we work and live.
0: That, that sounds like a really good topic for a future episode. And (laughs) I think having one of your Aboriginal colleagues on would be really, really great. That would be fantastic.
2: Well, perhaps, um, yeah, perhaps some of our um, board members or colleagues could join or Mm. Yeah, absolutely that would
1: be fantastic
0: yeah.
2: have there
1: have there been any um, i guess memorable moments in your your journalism uh, kind of career to do with health equity have there been any major successes or, or memories that you'd like to share with that
2: um Oh, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the Just Justice project that we did around mm-hmm. um, publishing a series of articles uh, profiling uh, the voices of Aboriginal people and organisations around tackling over-incarceration, which is a you know a, fundamentally about tackling systemic racism in yes. you know whether it's policing, justice, health, and wider systems. um, so that that was a very powerful project to be part of and it was a group, you know, a group of people working together and um, but it's, you know, things haven't got better mm. since we did that. Things have only got worse. So
1: And that would be like a really hard thing. Uh, I guess like I would find that difficult. Is like you, you're trying to do all this good work and get all this information out there but... Sometimes you just don't see those outcomes that you need for the people that actually need them. I've,
2: yeah, tough job. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's public health full stop, Absolutely. isn't it? It's yeah. not only public interest journalism, it's public health. I mean, you know, if you go back to tobacco control, that took decades. You know, here we had something that companies were making lots of money out of selling that killed people and it still took decades to get legislative policy change. Hopefully we've learned from that, but, you know, mm. it does take a long time and I, I do f- understand what you're saying, that people mm. could feel um, uh, you know, hopeless or depressed or whatever if you look at the size of the climate problem, but you, I think you just have to persist and that sometimes you do reach a tipping point where, you know, it's hard to imagine that in my lifetime we've gone from, you know, the Winfield, was it anyhow, have a Will, Winfield and the Marlboro Man and all of those very glamorous advertising depictions of mm. Uh, mm. smoking to the plain packs
0: yeah, yeah nice. that, that's actually a really interesting point that you raised there because we're sort of going through phase two of the tobacco with um the e-cigarette debate at the moment and obviously the phaa who are, you know you guys um are supported by have been very clear on their stance on e-cigarettes um in that they're very anti them being kind of yeah. adop- adopted as, as, as a mainstream part of um you know what's available in our society so on an issue like that, what? how does Crikey handle something like that from a public interest point of view?
2: Um, we haven't actually covered it in depth a lot. I just, I guess I have a, a great suspicion about um, <laughs> tobacco companies. Um, Which is and fair even enough. If, <laughs> <laughs> and so that probably shapes a lot of how I, um, view them. I mean, I remember when I was at the Sydney Morning Herald, this is going back years. Um, you know, a senior person in the AMA was taking money from the tobacco industry to do research and you know was capable of mounting an argument that that was acceptable. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So Amazing. yeah, mm. I just I, I am extremely skeptical of the tobacco industry and anything they're um, flogging or promoting. And even, I don't know if you saw, but I did do a feature article for Inside Story recently that was cross-published at Crokey, which was about how, um, you know, the corporations that make their money out of unhealthy products, whether it's um, fossil fuels or tobacco or alcohol or gambling, you know, they're booming during the pandemic. It's been great for them in many, many ways. Um, You Mm. know, they've been able to be good corporate citizens and donate respirators or oxygen or or whatever, you know, they've really seized these opportunities. So I guess yeah. that's how I personally yeah. um, look at these issues. I'm also aware that the industry is very active on social media in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, some very um, um, personal attacks on people, etc.
0: Mm. Yeah, they're very agile as well. They're very quick very quick to change <laughs> their approach and yeah. you know yeah. I mean, as academics working in public health colleagues of, of mine directly would get solicited by something that looks like a, a research group that's actually funded by a tobacco company yeah and, you know wanted to legitimize their their evidence if you like in quotation marks about e-cigarettes
2: I think something like that just came out in New Zealand yesterday um... There's something called the Taxpayers Association, which mm. had been lobbying on various things and it turned out it was getting a big amount of its money from the tobacco industry. It's,
0: it's always around citizenship and freedom and, and you know, that's how they get Yeah, being the, able to do what you yeah, want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the National yeah. Rifle Association so. is the same in, in America. Yeah,
2: yeah so... Um, yeah.
0: Interesting. (laughs) All very tough topics to talk about, There's plenty, yeah, and there's plenty of work, yeah, to do.
2: (laughs) But this goes again to the problem with the public interest journalism crisis because we're a small organisation with no resources. Like, we just can't do risky stuff that might get us sued or threatening to be sued that would literally... Um, you know, I want to you. say closes down. But, mm. you know, you cannot be as brave and fearless as if you're a big organisation. Mm. And that is another aspect of, you know, the the public interest journalism funding crisis. You know, newsrooms mm. don't have the budgets or, you know, the pockets to um, take on a lot of those risky cases that they might have in the past. Mm. <laughs> and, and and as you mentioned before, you know, the ABC public broadcasting is under such attack.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, and they're relatively well-resourced, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So Yeah.
2: So um, what I would love to see is public health people doing campaigns to, you know, promote awareness and value for public interest journalism and, you know, really view it as an important element of a healthy healthy mm -hmm. society and and building it into your research and your work. You know, there's lots of ways you can do it. And we we do have this... um, idea we've floated at croaky it's on our website to embed public interest journalism in research so it's not there to do the media and comms but it's there to be you know like an independent discipline through the life of a research project Mm -hmm. doing works of journalism you'd obviously have to negotiate ethical issues and things like that along the way but it'd be a fantastic way to actually do some immersive in-depth long-term journalism
0: okay and are you talking about issues are you talking about the types of uh, things that people do with something like the conversation already where they write an article based on... No, not talking about that
2: at all. That's a different thing. That's academics writing for the conversation, usually when they've finished their research. So this would be journalists embedded from when you do the grant application. Okay, okay. Some researchers have actually put us in one of their grant applications. So if it happens, we'll get a chance to test it. So it's a Mm -hmm. way of doing journalism throughout the course of the research project. <clears throat> so at the beginning, it could be telling stories around the context or the reason for the research. And, and the idea is it's done to produce journalism, but it's also done to produce knowledge around journalism as part of research and also hopefully to improve the research. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got journalists going out and doing independent stories about the topic, hopefully that will give feedback to the researchers that might be useful or, or okay. whatever.
1: So it's, it's almost journalism based around, uh, I can see it based around a, a typical journal article where you have your introduction, your methods, your results, your discussion. And the journalism, as that, that project goes through, it provides context for the background to the general public. It provides the methods in context to the yeah. general public. Yeah, no, that sounds like a great Like idea. a real-time it be- coverage. Yeah, real-time yeah. coverage of it, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and Dean not just demystifying the research process but bringing it out and, and yeah. also some transparency and, um, I mean, I just see, sometimes I see papers come out and I think that would have been such a great, you know, story to follow all the way through, you know, mm-hmm. in one way or another. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's That's some nice really one. interesting stuff. I don't know if you follow um, Phil Baker's work. He does a lot of research around... Um, the big powerful food corporations looking at global food systems, really. He calls them, I think, supranational, you know, like they're bigger than nation states, some of them, in terms of their output and influence. Mm -hmm. And so he's tracking... You know the forces that drive economic forces driving the food system to be the way it is, Mm -hmm. and you know that to me he's almost doing investigative. He is doing investigative journalism in a way, but I'd love to be turning that into storytelling Mm. Mm. alongside the academic reporting.
0: So, do you do you think something like that could fit within our existing research funding structure? Could fit alongside consumer and community participation? You know, if you put that in your budget.
2: Yeah, I think it would depend on what grants you were going for and, you know, how they're structured. But the one research group that's put us in, you know, they managed to to work it into whatever the structure is. But I think, you know, our experience at Croke is you have a go at something and if you can show it works, then you've got an argument, you know, for going forward, you know, possibly changing systems. And to me, you would be doing the journalism, the storytelling, um, but you would also be doing some publishing in academic journals, whether they be journalism journals or health journals about, you know, what you've learned along the way, you know, that there'll inevitably be a lot of learnings about different ways of managing knowledge and ethical issues and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, even what it brought to the project or, or what some of the problems were.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you're probably preaching to the converted here you know, obviously <laughs> we're running a what podcast. Your appreciations are converted here because, you know, we're running that podcast for kind of similar reasons Yeah, um, to try and sort of illuminate a lot of these issues and discuss Get them.
1: people's research out there because yeah. Yeah. a lot of the time they just don't and there's great research that sits in
2: yeah. journal articles that can't be accessed.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. It should be. That's right, yeah.
2: Did, did you see we published an article at Croaky yesterday about podcasting? No. no, but
1: we'll have to read <laughs> have
2: to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who um, has a nursing community research sort of background, she started a series of podcasts on birth birthing and justice. Um, and so we published an article for her about why she's doing podcasting. Yeah, yeah. it's also a way of trying to bring in some listeners to her. Yeah. maybe maybe the podcasters should interview each other yeah mm, it
0: happens routinely in the podcast world it does. so does yeah, it? Yeah, yeah yeah so that's a really good idea yeah <laughs> yeah i like it a lot of the podcasts in in the science and health space are pretty dry and they're very much focused on what were the research methods and uh, you know how did we analyze the statistics and i've you been know,
1: trying to get into some cardiovascular podcasts and i'm not going to mention any names because i feel like i would crucify myself but um <laughs> I very much struggle to listen to a lot of the health-related <laughs> podcasts because it is just so dry yeah. and there's no, like, conversation around it and it, you just need, like, a bit of, like, life
2: into a lot yeah.
0: of these podcasts. Yeah, so. exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to, to Ruth because I don't know if you follow her on Twitter. If you don't, you should because she's really okay. um, good value. But she um, she's just one of those people who's super energetic and, you know, super sharing i guess you mm. know yeah. you, you get a good sense of who she is and she shares photos of beautiful plants and scenes and what she's doing and yeah
0: yeah right. Excellent. it's
2: definitely mm. not not a dry podcast <laughs>
0: yeah okay that's great i'll definitely look forward to listening to that because yeah. i'm always on the lookout for a new one yeah me too yeah well look you've been very generous with your time melissa um, but we're just probably at the end now. Um, was there anything? Any final comments before we sign off?
2: Oh no! I just hope I haven't talked too much. I feel a bit embarrassed. I'm not used me um, asking the questions, and I just no. suddenly realised I was rambling on. So no, no,
1: absolutely not. We're the ones that are meant to ask the questions this time. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a great a great two way chat. I think even yeah. though you have you have answered our questions very well. Um, yeah, it's been really,
2: really interesting. Yeah, good discussion, I think. Yeah. Well, don't hesitate to reach out if you're interested in engaging with Croaky, either of you and also yeah. your listeners. And yeah, hopefully we'll get the housing justice thing to fly. Mm-hmm. We have started just using the hashtag, which is housing justice aus, because there was already mm-hmm. a housing justice thing. So if you see stuff that you think, you know, should inform the series, just share it using that hashtag and that way we can create a sort okay. of living archive. So All right, sounds, sounds good. Excellent,
0: good? Yeah, There'll be no shortage of uh, information for you guys, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly from us, right? Yeah, excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks very much, Melissa. And, Take care, uh, and yeah, thanks we'll... for, you know, the
2: chance, the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh, perfect. Okay.
0: Thank you. And that was Dr. Melissa Sweet from Croaky.
1: I feel like this conversation is, is quite different to the ones that we've had previously on this podcast um mainly because it it is obviously in public health because it's reporting on public health Mm. but it really kind of highlights the side of journalism um and i kind of feel like originally i feel like journalism is kind of scary uh and i wouldn't go into it but also i can see its importance in public health Yeah. yeah
0: yeah i think they play a really important role in because they're not tied to any particular political party or yeah, they, exactly. you know, they haven't got um corporate interests that they're trying to protect or mm-hmm. avoid hurting or whatever. They can re- they can really dig in and, and look at things objectively. And, yeah. You know, ask the, the difficult questions. Yeah. Um obviously there's a bit of a limit on that in the case of Croaky in that they don't have unlimited funding. So Yeah, if, that'd be tough. <laughs> if people did pursue them in the courts for something that they covered then, you know, they might be, you know, A bit vulnerable, yeah. But I think on the whole, they they do come at things from a you know a pretty sensible, uh, you know, uh, perspective. There's usually
1: evidence behind it for for why they're saying the things that they're saying. That's right. Yeah,
0: and you know, obviously they. I mean, I'm sure they'd love to cover a load of issues, and there are a lot of issues that come came up in that conversation there, Mm -hmm. which they just Mm -hmm. don't have the resources to report on. Um, But yeah, hopefully, as time goes on, public interest journalism—the pathway to to setting up public interest um journalism agencies might become a little bit easier as we we spoke about it's quite difficult in australia right now um but yeah it's really fascinating stuff
1: yeah yeah it was super interesting and I, i think it's also a good way to kind of start learning about journalism as well and the issues that kind of face our communities and if you want to go into public health, there's some really good articles about like the kind of research that you can do and the impact that you can have and all that kind of stuff too. Mm. Um, yeah. Really interesting.
0: Yeah, I was really interested to hear the suggestion that we sh- should embed public interest journalism in our research projects, oh, projects a bit more.
2: Yeah. That's um,
1: oh, so important. Just, I yeah. A lot of research just doesn't, doesn't get out there when it should yeah, See, I could have so much support.
0: Yeah, I think telling those stories about how research is done from, yeah. from day dot um, would demystify the process for a lot of people. Absolutely, um, and maybe encourage more people to, to be active, you know, actively involved in research, whether it's as a consumer or as a participant or you know, yeah, as definitely. a researcher. And
1: I feel like research is very abstract to a lot of people, mm. so that kind of journalism around it could really yeah. Help people understand.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Now we've got a f- couple of pet projects lined up for ourselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now we just need yeah. the funding. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: it. <laughs> we, we, we don't have a, uh, a page that you can donate on yet. But no, no, not we'll, yet. <laughs> we'll think about it. Um, but yeah, uh, where can people get in touch with us if they want to? contribute to the conversation
1: yeah me. so you can email us at meaning of health at outlook.com. so please email us um i'm sick of getting spam and i would love to actually hear from people uh so please email us if you've got any ideas or uh topics you'd like us to cover or people you want to hear um on the podcast mm-hmm. and we also have a twitter to get mm-hmm. into the academic space of uh, science communication and what's our twitter handle craig
0: at health means what
1: Excellent. So please tweet us as well. We would love to hear from everyone.
0: Yeah. And thanks once again for listening and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.